0: London is a city world-renowned for its architecture. From old to new, traditional to contemporary, art deco to gothic, and many styles in between, there are hundreds of great buildings in the capital. This week's fascinating guest, Lee Holman, is currently Head of Design at Qatari DR Europe, based in the heart of Mayfair. Previously Head of Design at Candy & Candy and Senior Partner at Foster & Partners, Lee has played pivotal design roles in a wide array of London-based projects, which recently include the 13-acre Chelsea Barrack development in Belgravia, plus the transformation of the former U.S. Embassy on Grosvenor Square into a five-star Rosewood Hotel. Lee is also involved with the expansion of the former 2012 Olympic Village into a new residential quarter, and the development of Southbank Place opposite the Houses of Parliament on the Thames. Building development and architecture never sit still in London, and Lee is at the forefront of how our beautiful city will feel and look for generations to come. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is Your London Legacy. Before we meet this week's wonderful guest, here's a little something for you. If you're a fan of the show and would like to get involved and support us at Your London Legacy and help us keep producing amazing content just for you, you can get involved over on our Patreon page. We take every penny and we'll reinvest it back into the show. If you want to get involved and get hold of some really cool benefits, or have us create your very own London Legacy episode, or maybe meet up with us and other London Legacy lovers in London, you can do that too, over at www.patreon.com forward slash yourlondonlegacy. Okay, let's get on with the show. Well, I'm delighted today to say I am here in Grosvenor Street with Lee Hallman architect of, what's the name of your company, Lee? Before I forget it, Qatari DR Europe, to give it its full title. Yes. Yeah, well, welcome to your London legacy. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, Thank you for inviting me on, Steve. No, not at all. We have had on the podcast, I think, to my recollection, two architects, prior to you. I think you may know at least one of them. Mm. I know, know Jason, yes, very well. We've got two Jasons. Ah. There's Jason Sandy, yes. who works in the same same building as you, the same company for you. Mm. And he was one of my very first um, guests on the show, good man and an excellent mudlarker. He's <laughs> taken me down to the foreshore uh, not that long ago. So that's great fun. And I know you're a work colleague of his. Another Jason, Jason Flanagan. Oh, yes, I know Jason. You know Jason? Used, you used to work you, with him. You're smiling away there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Jason was another uh, guest guest going back to, I think, autumn maybe last year. Very different um, spectra of work. He gets involved with, very big into the acoustics of, hmm. uh, of buildings as well. So, uh, and another lady, um, Carolyn Steele. I don't know. You that. don't know, but she's an author <laughs> and a speaker. She was a very big TEDx speaker. She she is an architect by profession, but she, spoke, she um, wrote a book called Hungry City. So it was all about how London grew up around feeding itself right from the Roman times and how it grew and the, the, the buildings developed and the population developed from agriculture to industri- oh, industry. Interesting. Fascinating. And she wrote a book, her second book's just come out, called um, Citopia. So I thoroughly recommend that for you and uh, anyone else who's listening. Anyway, I digress. It's, it's lovely to be here with you today. Tell us about the building where we are, first of all, and, and the area we're in, um, So this,
1: this building actually was built in, seven, in the 1760s as a house, just the front part of it was a house. It was such a grand house. It was really only a house for 15, 20 years before it then was turned into a more commercial, mm. institutional use. Um, so when when we bought it uh, about three years ago, our brief that we set for ourselves was to bring it back to life. It had been empty for about a year, but to try and find some ways of referencing the, 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 the original period that was built in. So... What we found was just around the corner from here, there's a map dealer that deals in original maps from all over the world and all different styles, some very highly technical, some more graphic. But uh, what we discovered there was a series of maps, four maps or well, five maps, one full map of the world and then four, one of each continent from the period that this building was built. And we, we have a, another boardroom, the same size as this in plan, but immediately above, the taller ceiling. And that has um, the four maps of each of the continents on the wall. And this room here, the same continents are represented in these four panels by our projects that are in those continents. Yeah, uh-huh. So Europe is uh, is behind you there. Yeah. Uh, there's Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Uh-huh. But the the actual original maps upstairs show how little was known about well i suppose from the western world was known about say the american continents particularly the west coast um when this building was was built so i like the idea that california virtually didn't exist in written form or map form at the same time as this building when was this building constructed 1760s. 1760 okay so there was very little mapping on that side uh well that we could see anyway yeah and then we have outside this room the overall uh, global map that that goes with the four continents, so that's one thing about this building that's uh, that's interesting. I think the other thing is it's it's a great part of London to be in as a property company. So we are in the heart of Mayfair, I think. Is exactly. That what that's yeah. right. Yeah. So Monopoly board, you know, we're, we're, we're <laughs> yeah. in Mayfair. Yeah, 500 pounds if you land on <laughs> yeah. the rent. And, um, only. and then fortunately, to continue the analogy, we own a hotel in, in Mayfair, uh, which is, well, it's going to be a hotel. It was formerly the U.S. Embassy, yeah. and that's in Grosvenor Square, which is just, you know, Grosvenor Street runs along the edge of one of the sides of yeah.
0: Of the And we'll, we'll come on to that. And also, as I was walking here from Oxford Circus Underground Station, I walked down Oxford Street and then… Bond Street? Uh, uh, no, <laughs> uh, sorry, new, across, the, across Bond Street from Maddox Street. Oh, yes. Now, Maddox Street… I remember as a kid, because my dad used to work in Maddox Street ah, right. many years ago. He had um, a solicitor's practice uh, upstairs there. And I remember as a kid going there and visiting him, and he'd take me across to Ham for lunch. And
1: it, so it brings
0: back some memories, memories. Even, even wandering down here at yeah. night time.
1: Yeah. Well, it is one of the, I don't know what, how many other cities that have this, so there must be others, but where, where a road can go from being Maddox Street... Yeah. In that case, and then it just changes into Grosvenor Street, but yes. it's the same road. Yes. Sometimes it can change back as well, and that can be infuriating sometimes yeah. if you're trying to work out where you're going. Yeah. But uh, it's all part of the history of London, that sort of rich tapestry of. Yeah streets and and uh, stories this is what we
0: love about london and this is why we're doing your london legacy <laughs> yeah because it's such a fascinating place and in fact what you were saying before about um having the maps finding the maps around the corner and the part of america didn't even exist when or or when people weren't aware of part of america one of the guests i had on the show recently uh written a book new world inc which is all about in the 1650s when the pilgrim set off to to you know conquer if you like and develop in the new world and go to china and america and it's just fascinating that parts of america weren't even known about it you know to us over here to, mm. to the english over here and one of the reasons why we had to spread for economic reasons because we'd fallen out with the europeans and we were looking to develop trading partnerships with the americas and mm. it's like well, we're, 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 we're yes <laughs> nothing new under the sun then really is there yeah so that's fascinating that's really interesting so here we are in this wonderful stunning building it really in a in a probably one of the biggest boardrooms I've been in (laughs) in a while. And you are the uh, head of design for uh, Qatari DR in Europe. Hmm. Now, you're involved in some huge projects, iconic buildings. But before we get get into those and, you know, the American Embassy and Chelsea Barracks and the like, how did you get into Architect. What was your first thought? When did
1: you first realize that you had a passion for architectural design or the the creative arts? Um, So I was born in England um, but when I was six my family we all moved to New Zealand and we went on a on a boat. It's a 45-day trip to New Zealand and so I grew up in New Zealand and when I was seven or eight I decided I wanted to be an architect and I don't know why. I know partly it was because there were two television american television programs that were on at the time the brady bunch and my three sons and both of the fathers in those families were architects that may have influenced it <laughs> or it may have been you know a passion for design and things I wonder like how, that. how many other people would
0: were influenced to become an architect yeah. for
1: watching the brady bunch but i think we also did a lot of um because new zealand uh, there's a lot of new developments new suburbs and things and there was a period where my family were looking To to buy a new house, but to buy one that was um, newly built. So that's when I first discovered plans. And we'd go and drive and visit these suburbs, and you'd see all these new houses. And from there, I distinctly remember seeing a particular house, which I then went back home. And either I had the plan because we'd been given it as part of the real estate agent, or I worked it out or whatever, and then designed a house kind of to take that house further on on paper. And um, that's when it really cemented for me. So that was about seven or eight years old and i kind of stuck with that all the way through my secondary school years and and when i had to apply for university in new zealand you have to do a year of kind of general subjects before you then specialize in architecture which is a little bit different to here and so i s- chose so- certain subjects that i had to do for architecture like maths and physics but i also chose psychology and that was my one year where i almost went in a different direction because i really enjoyed psychology but i think by the end of the year i realized that there's a lot of psychology in architecture. I was just going to say there
0: must be a, there must be a, a very important overlap yeah. or interest of psychology in the design of building and
1: architecture. Yeah. The way people feel around buildings, you know, why something has to look and feel a certain way. Exactly. And and that's maybe not all all architects are interested in that aspect mm. of architecture, but I've realized over the 27 or no, 29 years or so since I qualified that that's actually the thing that I'm most interested in. And I suppose I've moved from being a, a professional architect working for Foster & Partners, a big um, British architecture practice, to then going and working for a development company, Candy & Candy, that had interior design in-house as well as being a, a property development company. So I spent six years there doing working with designers that were very interested in the finishes and the feel and the emotion of spaces mm. and, and the textile, the textures, the smells, all of the senses and it was um, a really interesting contrast. But what, what I suppose happened is I realized that there are these other facets to, to design, to designing spaces and, uh, uh, spaces and buildings. And they're all about how they make people feel. Uh, we did a lot of residential projects um, when I was with Candy and Candy. So that's very much ab- about um, how you live in a space. And also we were doing projects that were for sale. So we had to work out how we could make the um, the marketing suites or the apartments that we we dressed how we could make them f- appealing for mm. sale as well so yeah it's sort of a long a long journey with one one year blip of considering something else but actually i, I think psychology is very much a part of architecture and i've found that that's a, an aspect of it that i that i've kind of drilled into mm. more no i never really thought of it along. from that point of view
0: but i can totally see how that would fit in and be important part of your skill set and i can't imagine there's too many uh, architects who have that well psychology. i think there
1: was a period in architecture where maybe when when psychology was a little younger where in the 60s where architects felt like they were changing the world mm. uh, and and perhaps maybe went a bit too far and thought that they could change how society operated by you know, putting everybody in towers, or all—all all some of those big gestures that happened in the '60s to sort of fix all the problems of the Victorian well, era, etc. <laughs> yeah, so I think architects are perhaps a little more cautious now in terms of trying to play God with the um, the buildings that, that they do. But um, so, how would you get feedback whether something feels good? Does it just go, does
0: the feedback literally in the sales figures or do you get some feedback in advance, you know, from the plans you you have like working groups so you show other, you know, I don't know, tell me, how does that work?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it happens on many levels. Uh, I think you mentioned about plans there. I think that's, that is key at the early stages and it's something that's very easy to get wrong. So when I was working at Foster and Partners, I worked on railway station, uh, you know, um, uh, production a car production factory um, office buildings so less residential projects and then towards the end I worked on a, a residential tower in Vancouver and I think it's if you're doing a multiple unit residential project so a hundred two hundred uh, apartments within one building there are so many things to consider in terms of how people experience the place that they live in it's it's, it's so different to coming home to your standalone house in a garden, mm-hmm. etc. The sense of ownership of the place that you live in is very different in a multiple unit apartment sure. building. And at the same time, so in in plan, in, in when you're designing something, you have to think about that whole sequence of arrival. So there's obviously entrance lobbies and how you make those feel. Do they feel homely? Do they feel secure? Do they feel showy? You know, all those sorts of things. But a, a key a key next step in that journey home, if you like, if you live in an apartment building, is you get in the elevator, you go up, you come out, you go into a corridor, and then you go into your door that's the same as everybody else's on the corridor. And that can be hugely dehumanizing. Mm. So, we have an interesting project in London that we're now up, we're halfway, we've built halfway up. It's a sort of twin tower, two, two tower scheme. But the towers are um say thirty two floors and say twenty eight floors something like that but at the at the tenth floor, they have like a tail on them they have a little a bigger footprint from the tenth floor down mm-hmm. to both of these buildings, but also at the tenth floor there's a bridge, a very wide bridge about six meters wide and about five meters high, that connects these two buildings and on the the roof of the bits that stick out that are bigger at level 10 on both of these buildings, their roof terraces. So essentially, when we were looking at briefing the designers for this uh, residential building, which is actually a residential building, that people will rent the apartments rather than buy them. We asked ourselves the question, okay, so if, if we want to encourage people to to rent uh, apartments in, in these in these two buildings and we want them to stay, for a long time maybe forever maybe they start renting a one-bed and then they move up to a two-bed and a three-bed as their family expands what do we need to do what is it that would encourage people to want to stay somewhere and my company with another company a couple of other joint venture partners bought the Olympic Village the 2012 Olympic Village so the the buildings that the athletes stayed in for our London Olympics and then we these buildings that uh, I'm talking about where we um, have these two towers additional buildings that we've added on to the land where the olympic village was built and the olympic village was always designed to have these further development plots so we also own a company called get living that operates these um, apartments that are in the former olympic village so they're all rented out and this company get living uh, look after the residents they ensure that the apartments are working properly Um, they find new tenants when people need to leave Uh, They'd make sure the furniture is replaced, if it's damaged, and things like that. But they had a lot of experience from 2012 in terms of how people lived in these apartment buildings. And all the previous apartment buildings that were built for the Olympics were all about this 10 or 11 stories, the same as the base of these two towers that I'm talking about. But they were very much, you come in, there's a small lobby, you go up an elevator core, or staircase, and then your apartments are off that, and that's how you move in and through the buildings. So we learned a lot about how people live in those buildings, but also how they interact in what's now called the Olympic uh, East Village. The former Olympic Village is called East Village. Um, so there's shops and there's uh, green spaces and things that these apartment buildings sit in and around. And what we realized is we needed our buildings to help to generate a community rather than just provide space for people to live in, come home each day and, and go to sleep. And, and that really led us to the way that we briefed the designers, a company called Hawkins Brown, to design this current building that we're halfway through building. And essentially, the way it works is we wanted people who were at the top of one of the towers to somehow be able to bump into or meet in some way, say, somebody who was at the top of the other tower. And in any normal building, you would just go down up and down the, the lift call, and go out, yeah. and you would never even have any reason to go into Mm -hmm. the, the other building. So the designers came up with the idea of having all of the shared spaces for these, altogether it's 524 apartments. And so to have these shared spaces at this middle level, at this roof terrace level. And so you can come down one of the towers, go onto the roof terrace, and there might be a barbecue area there or a place where they're doing external exercising or something like that, or just plants and place to sit around you can also then go across the bridge onto the roof terrace and into the other tower where they're having there's other things happening there and then within the buildings next to those terraces immediately off those terraces we have a come dine with me kitchen so it's a kitchen where you can book it have your friends from the building maybe or from other buildings come and cook a meal for them but in a a larger shared space we have a cinema we have uh, a pool room uh, we have a a yoga studio uh, and so what we're and we we're still building this so we'll get to see how it's going to work out, but what we're trying to do is is create these com- communal spaces that are also physically in a place where so that's where the plan and the architecture yes. comes in where you you're kind of encouraged to see what's going on. Yeah. Um, obviously, you can side. You can just go past it all and not be part it of it. It
0: sounds very similar on a grander scale, I have to say, to um, a block I was in only last week or the week before with a guest in Acton, and mm-hmm. I f- for the life of me, I can't. Uh, the rehearsal rooms, I think, is the name of the building. And again, you went in the entrance hall. You went up in went up the lift, and we arranged to meet, or he booked the communal kitchen lounge area Ah, there you go so that's the same idea yeah Yeah. and and that's where we sat in a room similar size to this you know communal seating area there was a place to have coffee and and prepare you know some light meals and snacks and things and then there were some sliding french doors which took you out straight onto the roof terrace right with views over not wonderful views but good views over london and then that took you over to the other block on the other side, where, he, where his apartment was. And there was, as you say, there was a fit
1: barbecue area, there was seating area. There I was have to go and there. see this building. You'll have to go and have a look. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think someone got there before you. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> or like it. Maybe nicked
1: your ideas. But I mean, if if the idea works, it can apply to multiple buildings. Yeah. Um, I remember going to see a, a building in Beijing that was uh, a, a version of this in a way, and that it was um, a, a multiple tower. Residential development, uh, maybe about eight, seven or eight towers arranged in a kind of a necklace around a central courtyard. But there was a, there was a bridge, a sloping kind of ramping bridge that connected one to the other. So that there wasn't, it wasn't so much that the key amenity spaces were on this level, but it was just a way of connecting at another level from one tower to the next rather than going up, down, across, up, down, and across. So it's something that's a theme that's, that's, um, that's occurring all over the place. It's a nice idea. It's obviously not going to appeal to everybody
0: because some people want to come home and just shut the door and yes, lock and themselves away. Yes, and you have to away.
1: you have to allow for that obviously to be the case and some days they might want to, you mm. know, be communal and other days they don't. True. But then going further into the apartments, the other thing that, that there's a there's a sort of an ergonomics of, of plan design for for residential where spaces will feel welcoming or too tight or wrongly orientated and all of those things, which I think is a, maybe on the one hand, it's a sort of a feng shui thing. Maybe on another hand, it's, it's, um, it's sort of simple orientation to daylight and things like that. So, so that sort of plan orient, that plan decision-making process in terms of um, creating spaces that feel right for people comes right into the apartment as well. In those particular apartments we have there at um, East village, the rental um, apartments quite often are rented by, say, two professionals or two couples. So you need to configure your apartment so that you arrive into a central space, but then the, the two bedrooms are kind of equally balanced. It's an equal offering. They both have their own en-suites, um, they're both a similar size. Because obviously you want to be able to rent these couples and you don't want there to be a sort of a, a better room and a, a lesser room. Whereas if you're if, if you were focusing that those apartments on a family, then it would be quite different. You'd have a master bedroom and you'd have, say, two smaller bedrooms and maybe one of those bedrooms could act as a study. So there's all sorts of different metrics and parameters that go into uh, deciding the, the puzzle of each of the apartments that work on a floor plate, which then stack up to become a residential project. Mm. So in that way, I think it's a really good example of the psychology of space, of, of sociology of how people live can influence uh, the architecture. You know, we very much with this building, maybe the same in the one in Acton, celebrated this bridge that connects across. And it's very readable, the, the amenity floor, that's on this 10th level yes. relative to the apartments that are above and yeah. below because we want to show, you know, this is where the life and the soul of the building is. The architects had this, um, they had this expression when they were designing it, the jam sandwich, I think it was. So, it's where the jam is. Right. You know, the the, 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 good stuff. the sweet stuff yeah, is in this yeah. sort of middle level. Yeah.
0: So, where do you, where do you fit in the, in the in the whole scheme
1: of things? Where does your bit sit and Qatari DR Europe? Yeah. So… In? So, I'm, my department or my, my role in a development company isn't, isn't normal. Your average development company, um, say that develops office buildings or perhaps mid spec, uh, residential doesn't really need a guardian of design of, of, um, of the, the DNA of, of their company necessarily in house because they're developers and they employ an architect and an interior designer to do that. And that's understandable. But when you get to the level of uh, very high-spec residential and a complex mix of phases within that project, for instance, our Chelsea Barracks project, or um, South Bank Place, or or even the uh, East Village, you need to have a thread of the aspiration of the project that is clear and well communicated at the beginning of the project so that you can set your designers off um, with a clear message on what you're trying to achieve. But even more importantly, it's important to have that thread still existing in the middle of the process and at the very end. Because designers will always design uh, what they think is the best design, and you want that from your designer, and you want them to keep coming to you and saying, but this could be better if we did this you don't want them necessarily to be saying oh i won't suggest that idea because it's going to be too expensive or it'll change the process because we're halfway through construction or something so you, so you need a guardian of the of the the idea of the project uh, from the beginning so you, um, do you, do you set the vision, the
0: template for yes. the vision, so as with, it were?
1: Yes. So with our with the development manager for that project, we agree at the beginning. Uh, there's obviously a certain amount of feasibility analysis that's done. How, how how many apartments do we think is right here? What size? What's sp- specification level? Um, so we agree all that before we, s- say, buy the piece of land. But at the same time, before we've employed architects, we, we need to decide... What direction we want to go? Maybe the building is more contemporary, or maybe, for instance, in this building, it's very much a listed building. It's very um, historically driven. Uh, the decisions we made here, so we we have to decide those things at the beginning, and then that tells us which designers to to employ. The the other thing that you have on on all projects is you don't just have the one the one design uh, mind. You know, say the architect um, would be the one that comes to, comes to mind first, sometimes you'll have uh, a landscape architect which can set the tone of the entire project even more so than the architecture. We're doing a, a, a huge um, Four Seasons resort and residences in Montenegro and it's, it's all landscape. It's got its own beach. It's in a sort of a, a, a cove. And there are buildings that sit within it. I must go and see that because we're going Ooh. to Montenegro in later on this year. Ah, well, it's not built yet. Um, <laughs> but we are just about to let the Man, I contract i I'm going to bricks for you while I'm out there. <laughs> yes. Uh, we are just about to let the contract for the first marketing villa and, and a, a mock-up room for the hotel. And then sometimes you have interior designers. Uh, for instance, in hotels… Um, sometimes the interior designer can be a stronger design personality in terms of the whole feel of the hotel than the architect. And um, so, again, it's important to, to be able to have someone in a role that can be aware of each designer's input and ensure that the, the output of, of, of each of them is uh, on message with, with where we set off at the beginning. Or, as can happen as well during the course of a project, we might need to change what what our output is intended to be. The market may have changed. And so if you have somebody in-house that's aware of those things that are happening, we can work out together before we approach the designers how we need to change it and why and communicate that. There's also a, a benefit in, in being able to communicate with the designers. Um, so having been an architect for my, myself for um, 16 years and uh, and then run an interior design company for, for six years, I'm able to understand where the designers will be coming from uh, and maybe help to communicate to them why things need to change or why perhaps what they're doing isn't actually taking the project to where we need to take it to. And that, that can quite often be the case. Sometimes with, with very strong-willed designers, the their aspirations for the project can overtake the owner's aspirations. So that needs dealing with as well but that's as i said earlier on it's important to have designers that are have conviction and and in what they want to do and sometimes they will be pushing for something and and you will have to say i understand why you're pushing for that and why that's important from a design point of view but really it doesn't work with our overall but is the visibility your vision or is it Qatari DR's vision? Or where, where does that come from? Where does that emanate from? Is that it's In, in the role that I'm in now, it's Gatari DR's vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the key things that I learned um, before joining Qatari DR, because I was working for um, Candy and Candy before, who were employed by Qatari DR to do the first round of Chelsea Barracks, the first set of designs with uh, Richard Rogers for Chelsea Barracks. What I learned was, the projects that um, qatari dr promote and want to be part of are because qatari dr is a qatari company so we are um, funded by the qatari investment authority so money from the qatari government uh, that's purchases the, the land of the projects we do eventually when those projects sell it'll the projects will self fund themselves here in qatari dr europe but essentially they are all represent re- representing qatar and so the projects have to be positive additions to the communities that they are being built in so each of the projects that um that i've talked about so far so east village the olympic village is a community with it's it's uh, ultimately going to be 5000 people living there and uh, it needs to be a positive community it, it needs to be a place where people want to live partly because we want to rent out the, the, the residences, but partly because it represents Qatar. Chelsea Barracks is the same. Uh, one of the reasons why Qatari DR decided to reset the whole design for, for Chelsea Barracks was because it was felt that the some of the residents that lived in the area didn't think that the architecture that was being put forward was right for the area. And so the Qataris listened to that um, the emir himself at the time listened to that and decided okay well maybe we can try again maybe we can try a different approach and actually what's now built at chelsea barracks the first three phases and we're now halfway through the fourth phase has very much been seen that it, it is a uh, it seemed to be now a, a piece of of belgravia the, the the streets and the and the public spaces that are between the buildings uh, have very much knitted back into the streetscape that's around so let's talk about area. chelsea barracks then
0: Let's take a very quick break just to remind you, if you love the show and would like to get involved, grab some cool stuff, get shout outs on the show, have us create your very own London Legacy show, or you meet up with us in London for a coffee or something stronger, just head over to www.patreon.com forward slash your London Legacy. Okay, let's carry on with the show. For the uninitiated, tell us what Chelsea Barracks was prior
1: to this development and what it has now become and becoming. London is an interesting city in terms of barracks buildings. So it it has had in the past a number of barracks in around the inner part of of the city. And part of that, I think, was was just for defensive reasons for to be able to be close by to areas that needed defending. But one of the other reasons is because of the, um, in fact, Knightsbridge barracks is because of the changing of the guard yeah. so the horses that are, that are used for the changing of the guard the regular uh, royal uh, ceremony that happens in london need to be housed somewhere walking distance horse walking distance if you like from the uh, horse guards parade right in the center of of london and uh, and so that's why there are there are barracks that are close in, in into the center uh, the particular barracks chelsea barracks i i don't believe it had the horse reason uh for being there it was more for for military reasons but again it was very close to the center of london right by the royal hospital which is where the chelsea pensioners live but in this day and age there's less need for the for the army to be based so centrally in london and of course these sites have become incredibly valuable because they are in in very wealthy parts of london so that's where chelsea barracks the the residential project that's where it came from, uh, the, the Ministry of Defense decided eventually, okay, so that particular barracks uh, site, we don't need anymore. We need to to sell it to get money to, to put into other facilities. And so they put it on the market and a number of different development companies pitched to buy the entire site. So they pitched with um, designers, structural engineers, architects, etc. And they pitched pitched particular schemes. And obviously, they put forward a offer, a financial offer to, to, buy, to buy land. And um, Qatari DR was successful in, in winning that bid and worked with Candy and Candy to uh, put together a scheme that would uh, get planning permission. For that particular first version of Chelsea Barracks, the requirement from Westminster, which is the borough that Chelsea Barracks sits within, was to have a detailed planning consent for the entire Twelve point six acres, and that's quite a a tall undertaking for a, a development company because it means you've got to decide what all the window details are, what all the materiality is, exactly what the size and nature of the the number of apartments, etc., is for this entire site, but. You're, you're also aware that you're not going to build it all at the same time because there, there isn't a market to to sell all of, all of that amount of uh, accommodation. And at the same time, there are a lot of obligations in terms of the affordable housing facilities that have to be provided as well. At Chelsea Barracks, we had a we have a public sports facility that's part of the public offering that goes with it. So a scheme was developed with uh, Richard Rogers. I joined the team after a year or so of that maybe 6 8 months of that scheme being developed and we realized we needed to bring in another designer to add more uh, variety to the to the the buildings to the architecture and to solve some of the uh, master planning uh, issues so we brought in a company called AHMM And we developed the scheme. We met with all of the stakeholders around the site. So the Royal Hospital on one side, um, there's a series of housing estates, Westminster housing estates on another side of the site. There's some very small cottages to the north of the site and then sort of some medium uh, rise buildings and shops on on the other side. And eventually we got to a point where we we had consensus with all of the different local stakeholders, the residents around. We had... um, Uh, agreement from Westminster on the approach that we were going with the scheme. Um, We also brought in Thomas Heatherwick towards the end to uh, change some of the landscape approach and we were ready to submit but at that point uh, that was when Prince Charles was shown some images of what the scheme might be. The images were a little bit exaggerated um, and that's when he wrote the letter to the Emir of Qatar saying I'm concerned about what's being proposed here. So it's a long story from 2007 when i when i joined the project um to then uh what, what was his concern his general uh, concern? i think his general concern was the character of the of the architecture that it wasn't in keeping with the surrounding buildings and i suppose there's a conversation there to be had about contemporary architecture which is very much not about solid buildings with holes in, with windows in. So, pin- punched window buildings versus a more modern or a different technology of, of building, which is a, say, a steel or a concrete frame with a, with a glass wall system. Uh, and So, I think Prince Charles' concern there was that um, that approach to architecture in that location was perhaps not not appropriate. Mm. He's always been known for voicing his opinion on things such as architecture. That's right, yes. And
0: and does that have sway? Did it have sway in the in the way that design it did have sway? It
1: did. Yes, and it's exactly as as I was saying. So the the Qataris wanted to do and want to do and still are doing the right thing for the the large um, for the communities that they're putting large developments into, and, and and we listened and we said, well, I think we can do better, and so we we started again. Uh, But this, the next time, and this was, uh, I'd gone to work, I wasn't working for Qatari DR at that time. The next version that that, that the team put together was, it didn't require detailed planning consent for the entire 12.6 acres. It could do it in stages. And it was a different approach to architecture or to the master plan. And the starting point for for the master plan, the second time round was, let's design squares, garden squares, which is just as Chelsea and Belgravia is, design the squares uh, first and then configure the buildings around the squares. So our scheme now that we now have consent for the entire six, uh, all six phases, has a series of seven public squares, garden squares, uh, with a a range of buildings around them. Some are townhouses, some are apartment buildings, there are some uh, brick uh, restaurant uh, retail buildings, and it's it's scaled in a way that's sympathetic to one boundary where it's lower in two or three stories, and then it uh, rises up to the Chelsea Bridge Road, which is what the road that faces the Royal Hospital, and there it's uh, hmm. it's um, Sorry, eight you, stories. You, Charles
0: can't go around calling it a monstrous carbuncle
1: then, but when it's all finished, well, it's it's been uh, well received by, and we obviously we consulted with the various parties that we needed to consult with. To make sure that the direction we were going in was going to be endorsed by all, and so far we 've had an incredibly positive response from, from from the the people that have visited the site the residents that have that have purchased properties within it and, and I think also the thing is now that phases one to three are complete, they are very much setting the tone for how the rest of uh, the site will be completed. Um, so phases
0: and, one to three are what? They're the residential?
1: So f- phases one to three is, uh, phase one is uh, there's 67 apartments in three buildings. Phase two is uh, there are 14 townhouses or 13 townhouses and a, a little muse house. Mm-hmm. And phase three is the um, 1860s um, original Victorian chapel that was part of the barracks oh, which lovely. was kept in this phase um, and then some smaller uh, brick buildings um,
0: And the, these have been sold
1: or these are so we've sold 75 uh, percent of the homes now and we've we're, we're just completing the townhouses um, so we have another couple of months to go and all the townhouses will be finished um, and people are now starting to move in or starting to do the their work inside their apartments putting up the wall paneling and so the public squares are, are there public squares have been and open so for a while wander now. around they can just wander through yeah they can take their dog for What's a walk the nearest underground station people uh go. Sloan, sloan, sloan sloan square is the, is the nearest yeah. so if you're in london and you fancy a walk through a beautiful collection of buildings that are all stone or brick then come down to chelsea barracks and yeah. have so, a look sounds fantastic might pop down there myself, have a look. And there's some restaurants as well. I think you said, or there, there's there was a pop up restaurant So, the Chelsea Flower Show, which is famous around the yes. world. That is held just across the road from Chelsea Barracks. It. Yeah, and uh, during the flower show y- last year, we opened a pop up restaurant in one of the buildings that will ultimately be a permanent restaurant. So uh, that's uh, we're now building that restaurant. So uh-huh. that will be built. Maybe there'll be another pop up in time for this year's Chelsea Flower Show, but it should be should be finished by the end of the summer. And so it was a permanent facility. No it sounds fantastic. So
0: from one iconic part of London to an, to an iconic building in the in the heart of London, not I don't know, what quarter of a mile from where we're sitting here? The old American Embassy. In yes. Square. Tell us about that and how that came about and to
1: fall in your lap to be one to develop well the the american embassy was on the market for a while um, i think it was like 2008 maybe 2009 so quite close to the time that chelsea barracks was on on the market and um the americans were keen to move to uh, a different building that could have purpose-built security facilities built within it whereas the uh the 1961 erosarinen Uh, U.S. Embassy in Grosvenor Square was never conceived to have the level of security protection around it that it ultimately had to have over the last 20 years. So... They were looking for a, a, a new place to 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 locate the embassy and uh, put the put the old embassy up for sale. So, the other interesting thing you said before we started was that they never actually owned the site of th- the that, that is an odd and that's an anomaly yeah. um, internationally. I think there's no. It's the only, It was the only embassy that the Americans didn't own the land that the building was yes. on. They they owned the building but not the um, not the land. And that's because in this part of London, the land tends to be owned by private historic families so the building we're in now the u.s embassy most of the buildings on grosvenor street are actually owned by grosvenor estates and so we pay well, all the people that, that own these buildings on in this area we, we pay a kind of leasehold rent per, per year and the americans were doing the same so they're also keen to have a piece of land that they could own and yeah. put their embassy on it so so we Q- qatari dr bought it back in 2008 2009 something like that and We started, and it was before I I joined here, we started looking for what the building could be turned into. And there were many studies done, and when I started, we were still looking at whether it could be a combination of office and residential, or residential and hospitality. But very quickly, the directive came from from on high, really, from the very top of Qatari DR, that this needed to be solely a hotel. It needed to be a special hotel. And if it had had, you know, a bit of office in it or a bit of residential in it, it wouldn't be the same gesture as a, a grand hotel. So that was the brief that, that we were set. And we ran a competition. Uh, we went out to six architects and we selected David Chipperfield. And the reason why we chose David is because the, the scheme that he proposed at competition stage did two things. It worked out a way to make a building that had become closed because of the security re- uh, justification. He worked out a way to open the building back up again. Yeah, because unless you were going there for a specific reason, I don't know, to be to
0: consulate or visa or whatever. Yeah, you just you, wouldn't you wouldn't go there. And as you say, more latterly in recent years, because of the high level of security and the bollards and the police and the armed guards and everything outside,
1: you tend to stay away from it if anything. Yeah, exactly. So to open it up is. And, and I think it comes back to the, the the earlier point about Qatari Dia wanting to not just build buildings, but to build buildings that belong in a context and are and catalysts to making those contexts better. So uh, with the security protections being removed from the embassy, that will change completely the west side of Grosvenor Square. Uh, but then by putting a building there that actually uh, what David Chipperfield came up with with his team was a building that at the ground level is outward-facing retail and, and has a, a way you can go into the building and through the building and out the other side on both faces. So you made a permeable building at the ground level, but then if you're going to the hotel, which is going to be in there, you rise up a grand staircase as per the original embassy building, and then you arrive at a first floor, a, a raised ground floor, mm-hmm. a first floor level, which has an extra-high ceiling, it's almost a double-height ceiling. And then those spaces on that level first floor. That's where the, the main restaurant is that looks back over the over, Gros- over Grosvenor Square. That's where the main lounge spaces are for the hotel. So uh, David terms it London's living room. So it's giving back a very generous set of spaces for people to, to enjoy being back in the building again, rather than it being... And views over the square that people wouldn't previously have uh, had the pleasure of experiencing. Exactly. And then on top of that, David's experience in working with historic buildings that are from this period is unsurpassed. So a lot of architects have worked with buildings that are Victorian, Edwardian, proper heavy masonry buildings, and then added, you know, contrasting contemporary pieces to the top. So, for instance, when I was working at Foster & Partners, uh, we designed the Reichstag. So it's a great example of a a building whose strength and uh, the mass of the building is still very readable, but then there's a glass dome a very contemporary glass dome with a ramp in it that's been put on the top so that in a way is a is a way of dealing with historic buildings but the buildings are strong enough to deal with the contemporary insertion the british museum is another foster and partners example mm. of that when it comes to working with mid-century buildings if you like modern buildings where the buildings aren't as substantial it's it's a much uh, finer task to either contrast or add a new element, because you can very quickly unravel what actually exists of the the mid-century mm. historic building. So the, the U.S. Embassy, the Eero Saarinen-designed U.S. Embassy, is what I would call, it's a an example of a building that's made up of pieces. So its facade is a series of Portland stone rectangular O-rings that s- sit on top of one another, uh, and they read as if they've been placed together and Mm. it's a very complicated structural solution because the o-rings in the original building were actually load-bearing stone and then they come to this uh diagrid level which is the the ceiling that's over the top of this double height space on the first floor and they transfer across and then down so anyway long, long story short if you take too much away from a building that's made up of pieces rather than a solid building that feels like it's carved out of stone, this is a building that's made of pieces of stone that are stacked on top yes. of one another, then um, you, can, you can destroy the integrity of the building. And so that the other thing that David brought to the project at the competition level was that he wasn't afraid to add directly onto the facade line of this historic building. So he proposed a sixth floor on top of the, the current fifth floor, that wasn't set back, it wasn't trying not to be there, like a lot of his contemporary mm. insertions into historic buildings. It was boldly saying, you know what, if, if, if we'd wanted to put a sixth floor in, on in, this, in 1961, we would have done it like this. Yeah. And that's exactly what he, he came up with through the evolution of the, the design, but started with at the beginning. So that top floor... Will still be part of the hotel or are they going to be yes. like penthouses or something so they are basically um more hotel suites but they have a higher floor to ceiling and so they're very grand uh, and as you would expect as you go up the building yeah. where the views get better because you can see right across the east of london right across to the shard the london eye um houses of parliament from the top of this building mm. but he also dramatically improved the proportions of the building so i think in in those two ways um th- the building will be transformed into a facility that people will be invited into and be welcomed into and be excited to go to. And then the other thing that that um, was in the original scheme was there's a a rooftop bar. So it doesn't get more and more exclusive as you get to the top. I mean, it does in certain suites, et cetera. I bet it does price-wise. <laughs> yes, but there is a space in the middle where the the public can go up and they can go and have a drink and they can stand on the the top terrace and look out across London, both over Hyde Park to the west or across to the east towards the city of London, and that again is a democratizing uh, aspect of the project yeah. that was there from the beginning. So, where are we in the scheme of the, the project? Where are we up? So to? it's a it's a listed it was a listed building or it is a listed building, and so we've that O ring facade, which is very interesting and complicated. That has been retained, and the diagrid that supports it that's that's been retained. But the slabs, the floor slabs that w- worked all the way up the building, they, they weren't strong enough to take the, the loading that's going to be required with the new use, uh, the acoustic uh, requirements of a hotel, and also the, um, uh, the fire constraints of one floor to the next. Mm-hmm. So we've had to take all those slabs out. So we're in the process now, it's a two-year process, of taking the pieces of the building away that we have to take away, Suspending and su- supporting and protecting the pieces that need to stay. Uh, and then digging a basement underneath for the event space, the ballroom, 800-person ballroom that's going in, the spa facilities, the plant, etc. And very soon, we will be at the stage, January next year, where we'll start building back again. So it's a very long process, both from the, the purchase and the feasibility stage through to getting planning consent. And historic building consent um, for the changes that we wanted to make and then through to then the shoring up of the building while we build the new pieces within. So from from purchasing the building to opening the doors of a new hotel, what's the sort of time frame? In in this case there was a, a period where we had to wait for the Americans to move out. They moved out a year later than planned so there was a period, of a bit of a fallow period yeah. where we weren't busily doing things uh, it's it's going to be about twelve. No, it's going to be about fifteen years. That that's the longer time frame I'm guessing by your face yeah. than you had originally anticipated. Yes, but yeah. you know you you invest in it's a unique project. Yeah, of course, it's a unique property in a in a special location, and I think that's what's fantastic about London is I think we have a planning system here. We have a set of values here that appreciate the good bits that have been done and they might be a small two-story house in a street somewhere or they could be a phenomenal you know they could be the houses of parliament and we have protections in place so that it feels like we're just constantly making london better not by pulling it down and replacing it with something new but by recognizing the things that are really good and keeping them or building upon them in a sensitive way and actually the things that aren't good, okay, we will get get rid of that and we will put something better there. And it's just slowly getting better. And I think this building was probably a controversial building when it was built in the heart of Mayfair, a 1960s building, a bit modernist. It's it's surrounded by Edwardian brick facades. It's almost on the surprising other that it, it secured planning at that time. Yes, there was a bold statement <laughs> by probably the Americans and Iris yeah. But now it's found its place in in the square, it it belongs in the square, and and we're, I think, improving it. And it'll
0: still be recognized as, people will still talk of it as the American embassy or the old American embassy building.
1: Yeah. And I think when you're you're creating a hotel, it's important to have the the stories there present in the building. Um, So we very much wanted to, to build on that rather than take that away and start from scratch. So, even going forwards, the operator that 's uh, Rosewood Hotel Group want to have uh, an American bistro in, in, in the building. And they want to reference some of the the history of the building there, and we 're doing it in other ways as well so that that uh, i mean this is a building that um, John f Kennedy. Uh, w- was in hmm. uh, Barack Obama has been in this building. Yeah, a huge history. You know, there were yeah. there were um, Vietnam riots in Grosvenor Square yeah. um, outside this building, so it's got all that history, uh, um, and it'll it'll be there for people to experience when the hotel opens in 2023. Mm. That's fantastic. So, for for you, apart from I would assume when they
0: sort of you break open the champagne and the doors open, what's what's the best part for you?
1: bringing a concept to life i think i I've, i realized it when we did chelsea barracks first three phases the best part for me is the assemblage of all the pieces um because at chelsea barracks there's um what is it there's three architects uh, three main architects there's about seven interior designers there are two landscape architects so the main master plan landscape architect and the and the um, the delivery uh and further detail landscape architect there's a there's a Unique sculpture that's been built, uh, created by Conrad Shawcross and, and built specifically for Chelsea Barracks called Bicameral. And then we have all the multiple craftspeople that we've met and worked with along the way, the stone masons, the joinery, uh, builders, the metal workers. And I think for me that the, the, the most satisfying experience is each of those pieces coming together to create something that has a thread. That, uh, that perhaps is readable. So, for instance, we set the brief for Conrad Shawcross to, to that, that his artwork should have a botanical theme to it. Uh, we set the same, not rigid brief, but but it should have the flavour for the balustrades on the townhouses that um, Todd Bunji designed for us. And with that sort of starting point, each of the designers have gone and done their own, created their own piece of that's works with the botanical theme, but also has its own component to it. Squire and partners designed the apartment buildings and the balustrades there have a 10 mil thick aluminium water jet cut balustrades to them. But the pattern that's, that's cut into this, it sounds incredibly industrial, but it's actually hugely poetic. The balustrades are based on a William Morris painting and they grow from a, a very organic uh, and tight curved web at the bottom to so a sort of looser more open web at the top but again it's a botanical theme I think that's the most exciting thing is just seeing all these pieces coming together and creating something that's sort of larger than the sum of its parts you
0: must have one hell of a patient personality <laughs> <laughs> apart from discipline and organisation because you're, you're like you're the fat controller you're like the organiser aren't you the programme director but I think you've also got to choose the right people You choose the, the right orchestra, designers the conductor of the orchestra yeah. I suppose aren't you yeah yeah um, and you have got to get them all singing the same tune and coming out. It's got to be beautiful at the
1: end of it. The, the best thing is when they come up with something that's beyond what you, what you were kind of imagining. That that's that's when uh, you really know that you know your your the symphony is is working. Do you because, get wow moments when someone brings to the table something and you go, oh my god, that is just absolutely. perfect. I just wish absolutely. I'd have thought of that. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's. There's a few designers that we work with that you just know that um, they just got it. They're just going to turn up and you're going to go yes, (laughs) next. (laughs) So with the embassy, it's been a, it's been a, we're we're halfway through the process, I suppose. But um, from the starting point of deciding that it's going to be all hotel, you know, the starting point of being able to choose David Chipperfield as the designer, you know, a key moment in the project, and then weaving in the other designers, the interior designers, which are such a key part to a hotel. And and making sure that they are empathetic with the starting point. So it's, it's, it's very, you have to be very careful that uh, when you step through the front door of a building, you don't feel like you're in another, in another world, unless that's deliberately what you're trying to do. Unless you're really trying to contrast the outside and the inside, which we're not here. We're trying to make a seamless composition that feels of today, but also feels like it could have been there since 1961 when the embassy was uh, was first Is this built. going to
0: be a hotel that joe public can enjoy or is it going to be super luxury that only the the truly fabulously wealthy rich russians and chinese and uh, sort of arab community can mm.
1: partake in I think the the hotel's going to be expensive to stay Mm -hmm, in because of of its location and because of the investment that we've put into it. But I think what's fascinating about starting from a building that was designed in the mid-50s and completed in 61 is that the architecture of that period and going forwards, certainly the modernist period, was founded on a democratic approach to space. So it was designed to be a building that was permeable, that you could see into and in an in original configuration that you could just walk straight into up the staircase and you're invited in. So that architecture, that period, was all about inclusivity, not you know the big iron doors and the small windows and you don't really know what's going on inside. And if you think about the hotel offering that's in London, they're very much of that that older approach. You know, they're 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 grand, solid, established-looking buildings. The Ritz. The Savoy, the Dorchester, although it was the 30s, and and they they create there are buildings that create a feeling of um, there's a there's an inside, and if you're bold enough to go through the front door and you can afford the the cup of tea or whatever that's uh, you could you can have when you sit in the restaurant, then you can enjoy it, but then maybe not then maybe they're deliberately trying to feel a bit exclusive because of all those things. Mm-hmm. This building, even if we wanted to do that, it would be very hard to do it because from the beginning, it's, it sets itself up as an inclusive building. The whole way it's configured, you will be able to see into the restaurant spaces. There is a grand staircase that's inviting you to go up through clear glass doors and see into what's happening. Mm. So it should really be almost like a tourist attraction. It should be a mecca for people to want to go in. I think it will be a tourist attraction. I think it will feel like a building that, that wants you to be included in it. And certainly the way that's configured at the ground floor, you will be able to go into the shops and the cafes and things that spill out into the square from the building. I think there will be an air of luxury and exclusivity Opulence. if you're bold enough to yeah. go through the front doors. Mm. And I invite people to be bold enough and to to, to breathe it in. Mm. Uh, in my job i do this a lot because i like to go and see what other hotels are like so where some people would go oh i don't think i'm dressed well enough to go into this hotel you can just bowl in and you know so you, and if people you, you ask wander you to into leave, the most luxurious hotels around yes, the world they were torn jeans yeah and- because they're hospitality buildings <laughs> just to see if they sneer at you yeah <laughs> can i help you sir <laughs> and if you obviously you're not going to go in there and cause lost? a problem um <laughs> I was in New York two or three weeks ago, and I did this deliberately because I wanted to go and see some of the the higher-spec New York offerings. And um, you do get people coming up to you going, oh, can I help you? And you just say, no, I'm fine, thanks, and you keep going. So I think it will be both. I think it will be a transformative building for, for Mayfair, for Grosvenor Square, uh, and it will be a transformative offering for people who want to come and stay in London, and perhaps they want to try something other than a, an Edwardian sort of grand building, um, they want to stay in something that's a grand mid-century building. Um, so, I, I'm quite excited to see how it's going to be received. Whilst you're involved in these wonderful, iconic projects,
0: what, what is your feeling the way London's architecture is developing generally going forward? I mean, there seem to be quite a lot of more, we're going up, we're building up again, aren't
1: mm, we? So this, yeah. Buildings like the Shard, for example. Yeah. And, and other similar buildings. It's funny because I came back to London in 93 and we were away for one year in Vancouver, but I've lived here ever since. When I look back now, when you see the odd programs uh, with the, the London of, of the late 90s in the background, you kind of think, oh, there's not much there, you know, on the skyline. Yeah, it's not as dynamic. I think London was able to take the changes that have happened over the last 20 years uh, without it unraveling its its character i think it's there have been positive contributions so far i think it's got another few iterations to go through now when 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 tall buildings were starting to come in to london so when i worked at foster's the team sat behind me were working on the the gherkin the swiss rebuilding and that was designed to be just one foot or whatever it is a little bit shorter than the tallest building in london which was the natwest uh building so there was that attitude to tall buildings you know don't push it uh, obviously that's that's now changed and destroyed <laughs> yeah but that was very much focused that change was focused in in that part of the city of london and then out at canary wharf where we did some other projects it now seems to there are other if you like development zones areas where tall buildings are encouraged by the planners and we have things the sight lines here in london where you can't build tall in certain places because it protects sightlines. lines so i think it's probably there's a danger that if there are too many areas of tall buildings, it might lose its focus. But I don't think it's quite got there yet. I think we're also about to see the fruition, if you like, if you want to call it that. It that sounds a bit positive, but the output of all of these residential buildings that are being built along the along the Thames, and and how that's going to play out, whether how they're going to be received, whether they're going, how well they're going to be occupied. Are they? Are we going to be oversubscribed? Um, so that's another test that London's going to go through in the next three or four years as those projects come to completion. I think I'm a great believer in cities being sustainable and density is a sustainable way to make cities work. Cities that are spread out, miles of transportation to get from one place to the next, lots of land swallowed up, um, are not as sustainable as cities that are more dense. But the, the trick is to make those dense cities Positive places, a bit like we we're talking about at the beginning. You know, if you can make your your two tower residential building feel like a community next to another community, then it can work as a dense city. If you're not focused on that, it'll just be acres and acres of yeah, and affordable, know. of course. Yeah, you know, yeah. So most
0: Londoners, a lot of the property in in certainly in central London is, is miles out of their reach. Yeah.
1: Well, I think that's we we've had a, a, a bump or or a peak of that. And I suppose when I was working at Candy and Candy, working on One Hyde Park and projects like that, that was very much at that sort of the zenith of property values um, going sky high and then that having that knock-on effect as as, um, in the areas around those expensive areas, those values going up, et cetera, et cetera. I think we've seen some constraints come in by the government to try to constrain that a bit. And I, I think they've been... Uh, effective to some extent Uh, and maybe some of those uh, constraints that have come in will make a more balanced mix of price points. We're also seeing so that the rental product projects um, product that we we are doing at East Village we're also doing them at um, Elephant and Castle and 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 in other areas around the country where there's a more interest in renting accommodation rather than buying it so that's at a different price point but that's actually affecting the market as well i mean it's a constantly evolving context as most you know large uh, complex cities are you can't really once they get to a certain size they have a life of their own and you can just nudge them in different directions you know Uh, we have within london we have so many boroughs they all have their own rules as well that are trying to nudge developers to do things and more affordable housing or more open space so it's a sort of i don't know it's a kind of as long as your city is well mannered and then there's enough nudging and there's enough financial dynamic then hopefully you should end up with a city that is that is positive if it's unbalanced in some way, you know, you'll get some developer per- putting up some horrible thing that no, just kills no, the middle of a city.
0: Do you see yourself personally as an organisation in a position where you're like custodians of London's heritage
1: and architect? I, I think in terms we are absolutely, along with other developers and 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 the designers that we work with. And I think that's what's rich about London, because I've worked worked in other cities where there aren't the same there there isn't the same depth of constraints. And I think. Those constraints of having to tie in with historic buildings, or having to tie in with certain ways that the city operates in a master plan sense, like a you can't have residential here or you can't have office there. I think those things all generate a more rich and, and complex city. They have those constraints have to be well considered, though. You can't just bring in constraints just for the sake of them. They have to ultimately be there to encourage the organizations that are building buildings to, to go with those constraints. But yeah, I think that's what's positive about London in that there's enough financial dynamic here to afford us to be able to have these constraints, which then lead to, in my opinion, a much richer tapestry of, of, uh, of architecture and master planning and townscape.
0: Well, it's, it's been fascinating talking to you. Please, It's been really interesting. I mean, of all the guests we've had on the program, on, on the podcast, program, I've never called it a program before, on the <laughs> podcast, <laughs> yours will be a legacy that will Londoners and visitors to London will see for generations to come. You'll be able to show your kids and your grandchildren and, you know, members of the family, look, I, I designed that. Look at that. What do you think? Well, that? it's
1: funny. The, the structural engineer for the US Embassy project, we were chatting to him at the beginning of the project, and he said, you know what the test of a good project is, is if... At the end of it, you you want to show your grandchildren. Yeah, and I, I I'd like to. I believe in that. You're I, proud I think of what you've, you've done. got to be you've got to be thinking of that. You've got to be thinking that other people are going to be impacted or affected by this. And so you have to do your best to to yeah. make it as good as it can be. Absolutely. Well, I'm very much
0: looking forward to uh, popping into the the grand doors of the hotel when it opens up, and maybe seeing if oh, I can afford a glass of water or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and wandering around the squares of um, the Chelsea Barracks and some of the other wonderful projects you've got on the go because they all look absolutely wonderful. So uh, keep up the uh, the good work. I'm sure the legacy is going to be absolutely amazing when they when they come to fruition, and you should be very proud. Well, regular listeners to the podcast will know that every single guest is put through the ringer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I ask all of them to mention to us one or two places in London that are particularly uh, particular favorites of theirs. Now, not, Lee's not going to be an exception because he's an architect. He must have plenty of f- places in London he loves. So come on, Lee. What are, what are the couple of places that you particularly like?
1: One um, place that I, that I really love um, is a place called Kingly Court, which is um, just parallel. It's a little back street uh, parallel to, to regent street which is a very grand street um in london but it's what i love about it is it's a three-story kind of courtyard in the summer it's an external courtyard there's trees in it very small intimate courtyard, surrounded by on each level by uh, restaurants that spill out look out onto the courtyard and the top floor uh is the yoga studio that i go to <laughs> which is uh, <laughs> also lovely. um so i highly recommend that to you in the winter they put up a kind of a fabric uh, these twin fabric um covers so that the courtyard stays it is a
0: really main. cool young hip it's happening amazing. funky place isn't it yeah, it's yeah. really really uh, really good and i remember when i was setting up the podcast we went and did a photo shoot um ah. in and around that area and we ended up i ended up doing um thrusting a microphone under some unsuspecting waiter's nose right. to take some sort of ad hoc photographs with him so uh, it, I, I like that i like that a lot it's a really nice place yeah a yeah. really great feel uh, and you, uh, i think you said you had another one or, uh, or not
1: so um Maybe because our, our children were born uh, near near it uh, Brockwell Park is in uh, South London It's just south of Brixton, but it's a it's a, a quite a high uh, Hill south of London and you can look back look north to, to, to London from there uh, and it's a it's a very relaxed um, Park great place with a cafe at the top to spend some time in the weekend If you want to get a, a view of some. London, there's also an outdoor swimming pool there the Brockwell Lido which oh, is Wonderful park. So I highly recommend that in the summer. Sounds
0: fantastic. So we'll add those to our ever-growing list of places. Two new places which we haven't had on the show before. Good. So excellent. Now before we finish, how can people find out a bit more about you, about more about your organisation, um, on social media Ch- or your Ch- Ch- website?
1: Chelsea Ch- 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 Barracks um, does have a website. Wow. Ah. So if people want to have a look at the, uh, the the buildings that we've built there, and and eventually we will uh, launch the phase four, which is three more residential buildings, another uh, ninety-seven apartments. 104, I think it is. Um, so that's very much public. The US Embassy project is is less public. It's we, we we will be launching it towards the end of this year. We're just working on some imagery and uh, and various things, and also giving it a name. It's going to have its own unique name. Um, so that will be coming out in the next three or four months. The East Village. East Village is, has its own website. If you're moving to London and you, you're keen to live in a wonderful new environment surrounded by great sports facilities and close into the centre of London, yeah, then… With Olympic Heritage from 2012. Exactly. And right by a Westfield shopping centre, yep. so that's all Who good. could ask for more. Yeah, <laughs> so um, East Village is the name of that.
0: So, yes fantastic and if they want to get in touch with you you have an email address or a social media if uh, people want to i find out a bit more about what you get up to don't really have a, a you're not a into social, social media, media uh, very wise address um <laughs> 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 i'm sure they got me on the website for your company which you want to restate katari dr, Qatari, so DR. yeah they will find all the relevant links to you there and then so once again it's been a, a treat to have you on the podcast thank you ever so much for your time and for sharing your wonderful building with us here as well. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Every week here at Your London Legacy, we bring straight to your device a new and fascinating guest with a wonderful London-based story. We hope you enjoy listening to their timeless stories as much as we enjoy creating them for you. If so, the best way to show your appreciation is to subscribe to the show. Simply go to www.yourlondonlegacy.com and pop your name and email in the box where shown that way you'll never miss another episode. Thank you for your support.